Coming up on today's show, the loss of a Canadian legend, a truly great Canadian entertainer. We'll talk about Norm Macdonald, who passed away yesterday at the age of 61. When you go to cast your ballot, do you vote for the candidate in your riding or are you voting for the party? What are the pluses and the minuses to the way that we typically do it in this country? And it looks like we're into a horse race in the final days of this. The polling very tight, but some interesting developments on what issues are important to Canadians. We'll look into that. I want to start the show, though, by taking just a minute to acknowledge the passing of a great, great Canadian, Norm Macdonald. I'm sure you've heard the news. Uh, Norm was born in Quebec City, passed away yesterday, just 61 years old, uh, from cancer, which I don't think very many people, if anybody, knew that Norm had been battling for nine years. He just, he didn't tell people, he didn't make it public. He said he didn't want it to affect the way people viewed him and his work. He just wanted to be viewed as Norm Macdonald, the comedian. And what a comedian. Um, you know, he, uh, he, go back to the beginning, he was on Star Search way back when. Uh, he wrote for the Roseanne show. And then, of course, the big break, and what I think most people remember Norm for, um, is his work on Saturday Night Live. He was uh, Bob Dole, you remember that? Um, a great impression of Bob Dole. He did Burt Reynolds in some legendary Jeopardy bits. Uh, and most known for his weekend update. He was the SNL news anchor for a time. And um, ultimately, that cost him his job because Norm, every single week, would hammer away on O.J. Simpson with lines like this. It was revealed this week that defense lawyer Johnny Cochran once abused his first wife. In his defense, Cochran said, Hey, at least I didn't kill her like some people I know. Uh, take no prisoners approach to the O.J. Simpson situation. And NBC sat him down and said, Norm, you got to back off. Enough. Uh, enough with the O.J. stuff. He wouldn't do it, and ultimately it cost him his job. But Norm is probably, in my opinion, the greatest late-night talk show host or guest in the history of talk shows. To sit back and just listen to Norm tell a joke, and sometimes the joke that Norm was telling really wasn't that funny. And he knew it. And that was part of the joke. But to listen to him, it would take 10 minutes sometimes for him to tell a joke that really didn't go anywhere and wasn't hysterical when you got to the end. But listening to him tell the story with a delivery that was completely and totally original. There was nobody else like Norm. He just had a delivery that set him apart from everybody else, and that's what made him funny. Uh, he was the last stand-up comedian on David Letterman, who absolutely loved him and his work, and he told this great story about the history of Germany. In the early uh, part of the previous century, Germany decided to go to war. And uh, who did they go to war with? The world. <laughs> it had never been tried before. And uh, so you figure that would take about five seconds for the world to win, but uh, no, it was actually close. <laughs> then, about, then about 30 years pass, and uh, Germany decides again to go to war, and again it chooses as its enemy the world. <laughs> And this time they have that guy, shkankly, kankly, that guy. And I'm not even going to dignify him by saying his name, but I think mean, you know what I'm talking <laughs> But you'd think at that point the world will go, listen, Germany, here's the deal. You don't got to be a country no more. 
on account of you keep attacking the world. Just meandering his way through another great joke. And I spent a lot of time yesterday just going down the YouTube rabbit hole of Norm MacDonald clips and just laughing out loud. A great, great comedian and a great Canadian. Uh, Norm MacDonald passing away at the age of 61. All right, talking about voting, how Canadians approach it. And I think over the years, we've seen it move more and more to voting for party rather than voting for candidate. And that brings some problems. Uh, Our next guest, Alex Marland, is a member of the board of directors of the Institute for Research on Public Policy and a professor of political science at Memorial University in Newfoundland. Is the author of Whipped, Party Discipline in Canada. Alex, thank you for joining us this morning. Appreciate your time. Oh, my pleasure. Do you think it's fair to say that most Canadians at this point are voting for party and prime minister rather than the person that's representing their specific riding? Well, technically, they're voting for somebody to represent them in Ottawa, and that's going to be an MP. But in practice, yeah, no question, more than 90% of people, when they, when they show up to vote, they're going to be thinking about the national campaign, they're going to be thinking about the parties, they're going to be thinking about the party leaders. Uh, very few people, you know, in past research suggests about 4% of Canadians are going to say, no, I care about my local candidate, and yeah. that's who I'm voting for. And we've sort of made it that way, right? The way, uh, you know, in the way that it's structured in Canada, we've sort of built a system that makes us be more focused on party than on the specific candidate, right? Oh, yeah, totally. It all goes back really to 1972 is the first election where party labels appeared on the ballot. And once that happened, things just changed. There was a lot of reasons why it made sense. I mean, people were out before 1972, they were out campaigning and they were saying, hey, I'm a, I'm a liberal, I'm a conservative, whatever. And there was no way to kind of control who said what. Um, and sometimes also there was two candidates with the same name and the same writing, and it was confusing for people. So it made sense to do this, and there were a lot of other reasons, party finance and other things, why they did it. But the problem out of that is it turns out that over time, leaders get more power, and candidates just become subservient to the leader and to the party. And we've reached a point, frankly, where a lot of the time, candidates just don't seem to matter to Mm -hmm. Canadians. Yeah, and I mean... uh... What do we lose by that? I mean, there have been some, and I know in in my own personal area of the world, David Kilgore was one of the guys who sort of was a candidate, and he, he got booted out of both parties at the end of the day, but you don't see that anymore. What do we lose as Canadians by not having strong, independent local candidates? Well, I mean, it's it's actually quite shocking because you're right, there was a time where we could point to some MPs who were yeah. outspoken and would stand up for their local areas. Now, it's not, we don't even know who the ministers are nowadays. You know, it's, it's like, who are the ministers? Can you, I mean, we've had, uh, you know, a government for six years, and being able to name a lot of the ministers is hard, because the reality is that ministers, MPs, backbenchers, they are all part of the party brand now. And so the leader is the one who is the key spokesperson. That's where the media trains their eye. That's where we train our eye. So the local candidates, really hard for them to be able to get any recognition on their own sort of uh, personality, their own ability to stand up for constituents. And, you know, you take a look at the way that the party um, uses this to their advantage. Like I was saying, Jagmeet Singh lost two candidates today because of anti-Semitic remarks. The candidate really knows that you sort of toe the party line at this point, the way that the climate is right now, and you follow what the leader says, or you're no longer in the party. I have interviewed people who have said to 
me, what goes on behind the scenes during an election campaign is there's so much stress. Everybody is so worried about a candidate potentially becoming a distraction that some political operative will get on the phone and will say to some uh, candidate, listen, what I want you to do is I want you to disappear. You do not talk to the media. You have nothing more to do with the media. Are we clear? You stay off social media. They talk to them like this. And the candidates, for the most part, are going to say, yeah, okay, sure, I'll do whatever you say. I might not like it, but if I want to be part of this party, I'm going to have to do what I'm told. And so this is also part of the challenge because it's political staff who are saying these things to the elected rep- or potentially elected representatives. And we have no idea whether or not leaders necessarily support this sort of behavior, although we can infer they do. Yeah, and so basically they're left to go knock on doors and try and spread their message that way. But even then, of course, they have to be careful. I mean, if you're a candidate, it has to be really dejecting to sort of enter, enter into the process this way and realize that really what you have to say doesn't matter. You're just out repeating party lines. Oh, more than that. It's more like you're a traveling salesperson because yeah. you're knocking on doors nowadays. The data that you used to collect, the information about you know who your supporters were, that was something that you had as the candidate and your team. Now what happens is you put it into a database and the database might be controlled by the party. And so now the party's the one getting the information. You're just acting as a conduit, whereas before you were the one who had control of things. So this is just a, another example of how technology is changing the way politics operates. Is there any way of changing this and going back to, you know, having more independent and actual representation within your riding? I mean, as we said, the framework's been built that way. How do we reverse this? Does it come down to the voter? I don't think that it coming down to the voter is, is enough. Uh, I think that really there has, I mean, it's so hard to say for sure. What you need to do is be able to find a way to recruit people who are somewhat independent-minded, who are willing to be able to stand up and say, I don't support this. Mm-hmm. A perfect example of this was Jody Wilson-Raybould uh, and Jane Philpott, uh, who came in, they were not necessarily lifelong liberals, and ended up standing up to the Prime Minister in 2019 over the SNC-Lavalin affair. But even then, you can look at the political consequences for them. They both are now out of politics. They're certainly out of cabinet. So it's really hard for a lot of people to say, well, what do I do? Do I be part of a team and basically take my lumps? Or do I take a stand and then at the same time, my political career could be in jeopardy? Yeah, and you just fall into the big machine and any goals or ambitions you may have for your own riding just sort of have to take a back seat. And, and you've got to focus on what the leaders are telling you to do. Which yeah, is probably the, not the why they got thing- into it. Yeah, you're right. So what I've learned from talking to politicians is they say, listen, you can be a forceful advocate. And what you need to do is you need to work behind the scenes. You can come out publicly and say something, but you clear it with the leader's office first and say, listen, I have to say something on this. This is what I'm going to say. Is this a huge problem for you? And sometimes, actually, the leader's office will say, actually, you know what? It's a localized issue. It's fine. We know you have to represent your constituents. Get out there. But the problem is most MPs and most uh, candidates don't have the understanding of the system that they can do that. It's okay to push back. Yeah, uh, and we don't see a lot of it. Interesting discussion. Thanks so much, Alex. I appreciate your time this morning. Thanks for having me on the program. Yeah, you bet. That's Alex Marland, who is a member of the Board of Directors of the Institute for Research on Public Policy and a professor of political science at Memorial University, uh, also the author of Whipped Party Discipline in Canada. And, you know, you really have seen a change. I mean, Jody Wilson-Raybould and uh, Phil Pott, as he mentioned, um, did stand up and speak out, and they're no longer part of the party, party right? Uh, Raybould ran as an independent. Uh, you don't see a lot of that. It's basically you tow that party line. We're going to talk.
talk about the final days of this election campaign and what the pollsters are telling us. Basically, they're telling us it's a dead heat. It's a horse race. It's a photo finish. Use any cliche that you want, but it's really, really close between the Conservatives and the Liberals. But some interesting things about how the issues are sort of bumping up and down in importance to Canadians. So let's get into that with Sean Simpson now, who is the Vice President at Ipsos. Sean, thanks for your time. Appreciate it. Good morning. Overall, let's just talk. Uh, this race has tightened right up, uh, pretty much a dead heat right now. So uh, overall, give us a read on these latest numbers. What can we take from it? it, it it's a dead heat photo finish right to the wire? Uh, yeah, well, here's one you haven't used, neck and neck. Uh, we, <laughs> we're coming into the final days, and we're tied 32%, 32% for the Conservatives and the uh, and the Liberals nationally. And it's essentially where we started. If yeah. you remember back in 2019, the Conservatives won the popular vote by one point. So two years later, a full election campaign later, and we're essentially back where we started with uh, very tight races in the seat-rich provinces of uh, Ontario, Quebec, uh, British Columbia, of course, Alberta, the, the Tories are doing well, but everywhere else it's very close. And it's kind of interesting because the Liberals had the lead, then the Conservatives had the lead, and mm-hmm. if you get to the finish here, everything comes together once again. Um, and it, do you sort of have a gauge, like you did talk about how people are feeling about the Liberal government, right? Approval ratings are part of the polling mm-hmm. that you've done here. What can mm-hmm. you tell us about that? Yeah, approval ratings are, are actually not bad at about 45%, but uh, they, they're, they're down from where they were earlier this year. And um, you know, even though Canadians desire change, the majority of them say that they, they want new leadership uh, in Ottawa, they don't know who presents the, the, the best option for change. And I think that's why we see you know one party get ahead and they snap back and the other party gets ahead and then they snap back um, is, is, a, is a bit of a, uh, not ambivalence, but... And not even dislike, but 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 a, a, a lack of clear option uh, going going forward. Uh, and so, no one party gets ahead because there, there's no consensus building that one party or one leader is the better choice than the other. Um, issues is kind of interesting because pandemic wasn't really on the radar that much at the beginning of this. It's bumped up to number one again now. Uh, things moving around. I mean, pandemic's always been you know in the top three, of course. Uh, mm-hmm, but mm-hmm. now it's number one. Is that because of the fourth wave? Why do you think it's become number one issue? Yeah, and uh, this was always the risk for uh, the prime minister calling an election campaign during the pandemic, is things were clearly going to be getting worse as the fall approached and not better. And so here we are with the pandemic as the number one issue of the campaign. By the way, Canadians don't know who has the best plan to lead post-pandemic. Uh, we've asked that a number of times, and Canadians are saying, well, there's no clear winner there. But there's a couple of other issues that have, that have emerged um, throughout the course of the campaign, affordability and the cost of living is now uh, the number two issue. Uh, it was further down the list at the start of the campaign, and I think we can see why. Uh, we just heard inflation is up uh, as high as it has been in, in about two decades. Price of gas, price of meat, all these other things are rising. Um, healthcare down a little bit, the economy down a little bit, climate change, which was the number two issue in the 2019 campaign, now is uh, falling off the top five. Um, and interestingly, in Quebec, We've seen gun control and abortion uh, rise to be among the top five issues within within that province. So, you know, those just like campaigns don't matter. All they need to do is look at this issue list, and we mm-hmm. can see how things that weren't an issue two months ago all of a sudden are, are driving people's vote uh, on Election Day. Yeah, when you talk about issues, uh, affordability, we just had a discussion about that here. Um, number two on the list, inflation numbers coming out today, higher than they've been in a really long time. Uh, I imagine we're going to hear a lot of talk about that over the coming days. 
Uh, absolutely. Uh, Canadians are saying that virtually everything is becoming uh, less affordable. Clothing, uh, food, uh, even internet service, of course, housing. Housing prices in Canada have been skyrocketing over the last year. Uh, and as a result, people are finding they have less money to put aside for, for savings. So uh, there, there's some votes to be had there if the mm-hmm. leaders can articulate a clear plan for, uh, for addressing uh, affordability issues, because right now they're not really seeing um, you know, a, a clear plan from anybody. Of course, the NDP is saying that there are people believing they've got the best plan, but they're also very unlikely to form government. So between the Conservatives and the Liberals, uh, people are sort of shrugging their shoulders and saying, well, neither of them have presented uh, me with a plan and how they're actually going to make things more affordable for me and my family. So we kind of have a pretty good idea of what the party leaders will be talking about and where they'll be going, all based on this polling, right? I mean, that's what it comes down to. You target the areas where you think you can make a difference and focus on the issues that people are talking about. That's right. The key to winning an election campaign is to differentiate yourself as the leader who is best to lead on the issues that matter most. So on the COVID-19 pandemic, uh, the prime minister, I think just by inertia, has, has you know, the, the best vote or, or more votes than the other leaders on, on that issue because he has managed the, the pandemic, the vaccine rollout went, you know, reasonably well once we started getting vaccines. On affordability, the NDP has a slight lead, but again, they're the third horse in the race. On health care, uh, you know, there's the, the Liberals and the NDP are tied. On the economy, the Conservatives move ahead. And on housing, the NDP has moved ahead. So, you know, uh, uh, each party leads on a maximum of two issues, not the five. And, and, and that's why we're seeing such a tight race is because um, Canadians don't see a clear path forward uh, for any of the parties to be tackling the issues that they care most about. All right. We'll watch it closely. Thanks for another update, John. Appreciate it. My pleasure. That's Sean Simpson, who is the vice president at Ipsos, breaking down the latest bit of polling as we head into uh, the final days of this campaign. We go to the polls on Monday. Thanks for listening today. To hear any of our other interviews, you can find them wherever you find your favorite podcasts. And if you like what you hear, don't forget to rate and review us.